We all know Michael Jackson's big hits, Thriller, Beat It, my favorite, Smooth Criminal. But I bet you didn't know about a song he wrote called DS, about a prosecutor named Don Sneddon. I'll tell you the first couple of lyrics. They want to get my ass dead or alive. You know, he really tried to take me down by surprise. I bet he missioned with the CIA. He don't do half what he say. Tom Sneddon is a cold man. Tom Sneddon is a cold man. He outshock in every single way. He'll stop at nothing just to get his political say. Don Sneddon was the prosecutor going after Michael Jackson for the most horrific of crimes, alleged child molestation and child abuse. All that stood between Michael Jackson and the rest of his life in a state prison was Tom Mesereau, one of the great criminal defense lawyers of our time. And we're gonna be speaking with Tom about what it's like to represent a celebrity client. How do you represent someone accused of such a horrific crime? What do you do when the prosecutor wants to win at all costs and is using all the resources he has to put your client away? Is it easier or more difficult to represent a celebrity client? How do you even get a fair jury who hasn't already prejudged the case? We're gonna get into all of these issues next. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense. But today we're going to go back to 2005 and talk about the Michael Jackson trial. And when I first started reading about this case, I could not believe that you got the first call and turned down the case. Um, Can you tell us about that? Sure. I was defending actor Robert Blake in his murder case. Uh, I got a call in 2003 around November um, from Michael Jackson's people saying, look, 70 sheriffs just raided Neverland Ranch. Uh, He needs help. He's in Las Vegas. Would you consider coming to Las Vegas and talking to him because he wants you to defend him? And I obviously was tempted like any criminal lawyer would be, but I thought about it. I was heading towards the Blake murder trial in February of 2004. That's when it was set. And I I turned it down. I said, look, I can't do both. Um, uh, Michael will require a lot of handholding, a lot of work, a lot of effort to get to know him, to get to know the situation. And I'm gearing up for the Robert Blake trial. I just can't do it. So people associated with Michael kept calling me all day and I kept declining. And um, that's what happened. Basically, we showed up for the Robert Blake murder trial in February we started picking a jury and he and I had a falling out and I can't really talk about what the nature of it was, but we had a number of meetings with the judge and she couldn't straighten it out and she allowed me to withdraw. And within a couple of weeks, Randy Jackson, Michael's brother called me and said, are you free now? We've always wanted you. And I said, well, I'm certainly free to explore it. And before I knew it, I was on a plane to Florida, to Orlando, Uh, for a secret meeting with Michael Jackson. He was in a secret location. Um, Arrived at the airport, checked into a hotel, was chauffeured to where Michael was. It was a big, beautiful home on a body of water and had a number of discussions with Michael and people around him and then flew back, not knowing if he was going to want me or not, because I assumed he was talking to a lot of other lawyers and got a call from Randy Jackson shortly thereafter. And he 
Michael wants you. So I ended up in the Michael Jackson games. Those, those beauty contests are so stressful, especially, you know, when you're talking about a big celebrity and, and they must be interviewing lots of lawyers. Did you, did you know he was talking to other folks or you didn't really focus on that kind of thing? I didn't really know. Um, uh, I was told I had always been his first choice, um, but I really didn't know. So my assumption was he must be talking to other people. And when I was interviewed, it was interesting because I was in a room with a number of people, including Michael in the background, and he didn't say a word. He just stared at me very intensely. And his colleagues were asking me all the questions about how I was raised, my value system, my upbringing, my experiences as a lawyer, why I went to law school, what trials I've done, et cetera. And I walked out of there um, without having really heard much from Michael, but he had a very intense stare uh, he was very focused on who I was and what I could possibly do. And uh, Randy told me later on, he said after the interview, he, he only wants you. He doesn't want to talk to anybody else. So I was very flattered by that. And we worked it out. I made another trip to Florida. It was announced publicly and I was off and running. That That's interesting. And so, I mean, I imagine in cases like this where you have a the most famous person in the world at the time, and even with other celebrities, they always want sort of you to go through their handlers. Um, did you have a tough time sort of developing a rapport with, with Michael Jackson early on in the case? Did you always have to go through the handlers or were you speaking with him directly? Well, the, the primary person I went through was Randy Jackson, his brother. And I had known Randy for a number of years, uh, mostly on a social level. We would get together once in a while, have a bite to eat. Uh, it was very low key. You know, interaction, you know, I wasn't involved in a big case with him or anything like that. And, and so Randy was the one who was in charge of his affairs. And Randy was the one I'd known for years. And Randy was the one that I primarily went through. You know, he had his nanny, Grace, who was very influential in his life, who took care of his children with him. Uh, there were some other people around. But Michael was not the kind of person that trusted very many people. And I think he learned from an early age that, um, you know, People are, you've got to be wary about adults. They, they, they want fame, they want money, they want fortune, um, and you got to be careful. I think he learned it from a very early age, and I think he didn't have much of a childhood because of it. He was thrust into the limelight so early, so completely, um, and began to learn the ropes at an astonishingly early age. I mean, he kind of broke off from his family for a while in his teens. He basically came to Los Angeles, lived with Diana Ross, struck out on his own. So he had to mature very, very quickly and very, and in my opinion, very painfully because he didn't have much of a childhood. I mean, he, uh, he used to rehearse till three in the morning. He'd have to get up till at six to get ready for school. On weekends as a child, he was performing in clubs in Detroit and Chicago and uh, never had much of a childhood, had to mature and, and become a savvy person very quickly. And I imagine you know, it's tough to, with someone like that, to develop a rapport and to develop the trust you need from an attorney-client perspective. I mean, I always find it hard just in the regular case, um, but in this case, it must have been times 10. Well, poor Michael, I think, was used to everybody trying to pick his pocket. You know, he was a very sensitive, kind, nice person, very gentle, uh, very self-effacing. I mean, an amazingly kind, decent person. Uh, particularly in private when he wasn't performing. Um, but he learned to be wary of others very early. 
He had so many friendships he thought were real and suddenly people would turn on him and sue him or want a handout of some kind or want him to promote their project or want him to be seen with them somehow, somewhere. And he just became very wary. I think he, I think he developed the feeling that even as nice as someone might be, because of my fame and fortune and talent, they're going to turn on me at some point. And I kind of shocked him at one point. I said, Michael, I want to be very clear about something. I don't know the entertainment industry. I don't know the music business. I'm not in either one. I'm here to be a criminal defense lawyer and win the case. I don't want to get in your financial affairs. I don't want to get in your entertainment industry. I don't want to get in, in your music business. I want to do what I'm meant to do. And he looked at me very puzzled. I don't think he was expecting that kind of a, kind of a remark, but I wanted to hit it over the head very early. This is who I am and this is who I'm not. And I basically focus on the trial and the case. Right. And he probably appreciated that a lot. I mean, with, with someone like that, I mean, typically we, we meet with clients in our offices. Um, you know, they come to us with, with someone like that. Obviously, he's not driving to your office. So, so how do you even set up a meeting with him? Where do you meet? How does that happen? Mostly the meetings are either at Neverland or at secret locations. Um, obviously, during the trial, we would have a room for the family uh, that we would meet in during the trial. But most of them are in Neverland or a couple of times with Randy at some hotels. Right. And, and you've tried cases, obviously, in Alabama where you don't have much of a budget here. I imagine you have an unlimited budget, unlimited resources. So how, how do you go about in a case like that, thinking about putting together a team, uh, putting together consultants and all that other stuff? How, how do you do that? It's not easy. Because usually the people you can trust uh, are on one hand, maybe. Um, it's very hard to trust people. And everybody, including lawyers, have a tendency to, when they're in a big case with a big celebrity, to somehow change. Lawyers begin to think it's all about them, not the client. Consultants think they're going to have it made the rest of their life. People who don't want to dodge cameras, they want to think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be a different person the rest of my days because I'm near a camera or I'm near the media or because people are calling me. And I always, I always tell lawyers and I tell people who are non-lawyers on defense teams, you're just a commodity to the media. They want you to think they're your close friend. They want you to think that they'll do anything for you, that you can trust them. Believe me, when this case is over with, you know, you're not going to be talking to them very much. And I'll tell you what really taught me that lesson. When I was defending Robert Blake, uh, for the first time, I got some national recognition. I had some local recognition before it, but the Robert Blake preliminary hearing cast me into a national spotlight. And for anyone who doesn't know what a preliminary hearing is in California, someone is charged with a crime and they then have what is called a preliminary hearing, which is a hearing before a judge, not a jury. And the prosecution is required to present enough evidence to show a judge that there's a reasonable basis to go forward with the case. That's really what it is. Well, we had a preliminary hearing. Uh, I was asked, did I oppose cameras in the courtroom? And I said, no, which shocked a lot of people because the DA's office had a written policy of not supporting or opposing cameras in the courtroom. I said, put cameras in because I had a plan which was very secret to me. And that was that I had planned to turn this preliminary hearing into a trial on the case. And I wanted to affect public opinion. I wanted people to see how thin their case was. And I sensed some hubris by the prosecutors. I sensed they wanted to make a big production out of this because they thought there was no way they could lose. 
and they thought they could showcase who they were and showcase their witnesses. Now, when I say showcase their witnesses, what I mean is this. In California, at a preliminary hearing, a prosecutor can put a police officer on to simply give hearsay testimony. The police officer can say, this witness said this, this alleged victim said that. Things they can't do at a trial. But in this case, I knew they were going to call live witnesses because they were so confident in their case. And they just, in my opinion, were affected by the cameras as well. I really believe that. So I decided to surprise them with thorough cross of these witnesses. Now, I say thorough cross-examination because typically at a preliminary hearing, a defense attorney doesn't cross-examine that much. They cross-examine a little bit. They may want to pin witnesses down to certain statements, but they're not trying to make them look horrible for two reasons. One, the lawyer usually isn't prepared to thoroughly cross-examine. And two, they're afraid if they give away their cross-examination style and technique, uh, the prosecution will be able to prepare for it for trial. I put all factors together and I said, they're, they're, they're going to put witnesses on. They're not going to be ready for a thorough cross. We're going to have these witnesses on videotape because it's being televised. We're going to nail them down. And it's going to kill their case. And quite honestly, that's exactly what happened. Blake was charged with murder with special circumstances, which in California could bring the death penalty. And nobody had gotten bail over prosecution objection before that particular preliminary hearing. I nailed the prosecution's witnesses. Blake got bail, which was a shock to everybody. Because of the cross-examination of the witnesses, the co-defendant and the conspiracy count were thrown out of the case. Public opinion changed. Court TV televised it and going into it, 80 plus percent of viewers thought Blake was guilty and coming out of the preliminary hearing after three weeks, 80 plus percent thought he was not guilty. Because of what happened in that preliminary hearing, two extremely good prosecutors were removed and a less competent prosecutor replaced them. And so much went Blake's way in that preliminary hearing. That's what thrust me into a national spotlight. I didn't have it before then. After it, of course, Randy Jackson had watched the whole preliminary hearing. And when Michael got into trouble, they contacted me very quickly. And as I said before, I was involved in, in getting ready for trial. Didn't think I would have time for both. And then we had a Blake and I had a falling out in the middle of jury selection. And usually a judge won't let you out of a case in the middle of jury selection. That's too late. But this judge was willing to do that. Um, the trial was continued. Um, Blake hired other counsel and I went on to Michael Jackson. And, and I think the preliminary hearing in Michael Jackson had already occurred um, by the time you came into the case. I, I read that the that the Jackson preliminary hearing was a disaster. Unlike the Robert Blake preliminary hearing, the judge got upset that Jackson was late and and some other things. What, what happened there? Oh, there was not a preliminary hearing. What happened was the prosecutors filed a criminal complaint. Jackson had a right to a preliminary hearing. His prior lawyers kept continuing the preliminary hearing date. And suddenly the prosecutors changed their strategy and took the case to a grand jury to return a grand jury indictment. Now, uh, if anyone listening doesn't know the difference, in a grand jury proceeding, it's secret, it's behind closed doors, there's no judge, and there's no defense attorney. The prosecutor calls witnesses, can ask any question they want, there's no cross-examination, and there's no judge controlling what's asked or what's not asked. So when a grand jury returns an indictment, which is almost automatic if a prosecutor wants it, there is no right to a preliminary hearing. Now, sometimes in California, prosecutors calculate 
I'd rather see my witnesses in private when they're questioned uh, under oath. I don't want them subjected to cross-examination right away. And I don't want a public viewing of what we're talking about. So they will choose to go by way of grand jury indictment where there's no right to a public preliminary hearing before trial. So they switched their approach at some point. There was a little bit of upset among some people around Michael Jackson that the prior lawyers had kept continuing the preliminary hearing because there was a feeling that a preliminary hearing could benefit Michael Jackson. But when I got in the case, he had been indicted by a grand jury and there was no right to a preliminary hearing. I see. And and the prosecutor in this case, uh, a guy named Snedden, um, I, I saw that there's a lot of bad blood going into this trial between Jackson and, and the prosecutor, so much so that Jackson had all, uh, written a song about the guy uh, after the old 93 settlement. I mean, that's uh, it's quite high stakes when you're going into a trial. Well, uh, Tom Snedden was very determined, very driven, uh, almost never lost a trial had been the DA of Santa Barbara County for over 20 years, highly respected. And he had convened a grand jury in the early 1990s to try and indict Michael Jackson. And the grand jury did not indict him. And simultaneously, he influenced Los Angeles County, which is right below Santa Barbara County in Southern California, to also convene a grand jury. And that grand jury did not indict Michael Jackson. Time went by. Snedden flew at least to Australia and Canada and perhaps other countries looking for witnesses against Michael Jackson. He had the Sheriff's Department in Santa Barbara County have a website for anyone who would give them information on Michael Jackson. And eventually he, conv he convened a second grand jury, excuse me, he convened a third grand jury, uh, which indicted Michael Jackson. So Tom Snedden, in my opinion, was hell bent he was going to convict Michael Jackson. Sounds it like it almost seemed like a to me, an irrational, you know, passionate drive to take down the world's best known celebrity. And, and did you, had you tried cases against him before or was this the first one? I had never tried a case in that county, which I said before, it's, it's directly north of Los Angeles County. Um, the Santa Maria Courthouse where this was tried was about a three hour drive from where I live in practice. Um, and it was the first time I'd actually tried a case in Santa Barbara County. But I lived there for six months. The trial was approximately five months. It was quite an experience. Tom was headed to the Santa Maria Courthouse in Santa Barbara County, where he had never tried a case, to face a prosecutor who had an irrational drive to convict Michael Jackson. We'll hear how Tom prepared for the case next in For the Defense. In the next segment of For the Defense, we'll speak to Tom Mesereau about all of the different pressures that exist when representing a celebrity client during a trial. I mean, just for example, the celebrity's entourage believes the case should be handled in a certain way. The pundits believe it should be handled in a different way and the press and so on. When as a criminal defense lawyer, you have to convince all of these people, including your client, why you should handle a case in a different way. And we'll start off talking about jury selection, where everyone thought that race was really important, including the prosecutors, the judge, the pundits, and even Michael Jackson's own entourage wanted uh, race to matter in jury selection when Tom Mesereau knew that he was much better off focusing on gender. And we'll talk about that 
as well as a number of other issues, including who makes these decisions. Um, I think most people don't realize that a defendant only decides whether to plead guilty or go to trial and whether to testify. Every other strategic decision is made by the defense lawyer himself. And one of the tricks to a successful practice and successful trial is making sure the client understands and buys into your decisions and not just taking contrary ones. And we'll see how Tom works with Michael Jackson in his trial to come out with going a certain way when everybody else believes you should have taken the opposite tact. And, and so going into a trial like that, where, where you hadn't tried a case, it's outside of your hometown, you have to try to figure out what kind of jury you want and do uh, voir dire. I understand you had a jury consultant who gave you all kinds of uh, uh, statistics and, and demographics. Did, did you rely on that consultant or did you go with, with your gut? Well, the consultant was very helpful. She did a lot of phone surveys, accumulated a lot of data and put together a report. And the report basically profiled what a typical pro-prosecution juror looked like and what a typical pro-defense juror looked like. And she used information and correlated that information. I'm talking about things like race, gender, occupation, political affiliation, age, part of town you live in. She put all of this data together had a typical pro-prosecution juror, typical pro-defense juror, and the issues that affected them in order of importance. Uh, it was very helpful, but it was not what I relied on at all. I relied on my gut. One of the best things I did was go up to Santa Barbara periodically, walk into a bar in my jeans and black leather jacket, sit there alone having a, a glass of wine, and invariably somebody would come up to me and asked me if I was Michael Jackson's lawyer, and I would say yes, and we would start chatting. And I started chatting with people to find out what people thought of Michael Jackson. He was the most famous, you know, resident of the county. And I learned that there was a lot of open-mindedness on Michael Jackson. This was a very conservative, law-abiding community, very high conviction rate. They really respected their police. They respected law enforcement. But I also did that there was, a, there was a very strong independence to them, an almost libertarian type of spirit. Like, we're good people, we follow the law, we don't hurt other people, but government don't go too much into our lives because we like to run them ourselves. I learned that that part of the county, which was the northern part of the county, had a certain attitudinal split from the southern part of the county where Snedden's main office was. North County was more blue collar than South County. Um, it was more libertarian. It was more pro-law enforcement. But as I said before, they had their strong independent feelings about what they did and didn't do in life. I learned that there had been two bills introduced in the state legislature for the North County to secede from the South County, which had not gone anywhere, but there was real independence. And I began to think as I talked to people, almost everybody was either white or Latino. I didn't see very many Asians or African-Americans uh, in the establishments I went into. And indeed, there were very few Asians or African-Americans in that part of the county. So I said to myself, um, you know, I think we're going to get a fair trial here, as conservative as people claim the place is. Now, I decided not to make a motion for change of venue um, based on my interaction with the people. And I was criticized heavily for that because... My feeling was if I make a motion for a change of venue, 
We're either going to be sent north to Bakersfield outside of the county, which is very conservative, and Michael Jackson doesn't have a presence there. He doesn't employ 100 people. He doesn't, you know, live in Neverland, which is very, very prominent. He doesn't come into town once in a while, where apparently everybody thought he was one of the nicest people they'd ever met. If I go to south, south of Santa Barbara County, it'll be in Ventura, which is right between L.A. and Santa Barbara. Same problem conservative people, but they won't know Michael Jackson the way they do in this part of the world. So I said, I'm staying right here. I trust the people in this county. And uh, fortunately, it worked out. But back to the jury consultant. I was advised, for example, be wary of females. This is a child molestation case. Be wary of mothers. And I decided to take the exact opposite approach. I said, I want females on this jury. And I did it for a number of reasons. Uh, Again, we're generalizing now. Everybody's an individual. But we generalize when we're picking juries because sometimes we don't have time to do much else. We get some personal data on who the people are, but we rely on our instincts and our general knowledge of the situation. I was defending someone who's sex- a male whose sexuality was being attacked and attacked viciously. The prosecutors throughout that trial, in my opinion, very viciously uh, and very improperly, were calling him a guy who sleeps with boys. They were calling him gay. They were calling him heterosexual. They were calling him asexual. They were calling him everything under the sun. Okay. They kept flip-flopping and these, these attitudes would come out in various ways through their questions, through their comments. Uh, It was kind of a nasty attack on Michael's sexuality. And Michael was a man, an artist, the world's greatest artist in many ways, uh, someone who danced to his own drummer, dressed in his own particular way enormously creative, enormously intuitive, enormously sensitive. And in my experience defending creative artistic men whose sexuality is being attacked, I have found heterosexual women to be much more open-minded than heterosexual men. I have always found heterosexual men to be very quickly judgmental of the male whose whose sexuality is being attacked. I find heterosexual women to be much more open-minded less judgmental right off the bat, more emotionally available, less judgmental of eccentric, artistic, creative, offbeat types of men. Obviously, a gay female would be fine. But I decided I was going to concentrate on getting women on the jury. I wanted mothers because I thought they would find out the more they learned about Michael Jackson, what a sensitive man he was, and how his approach to children was quite the opposite of what the prosecution was saying it was that he became a champion of children. He wanted an international children's holiday to focus on the needs of our children. He said, around the world, we're neglecting our children. Neverland was a place where inner city kids would go periodically to visit and have fun. And he he had a rule when he did did a concert anywhere in the world, he would visit a children's hospital. So my intent was to turn around this ugly, nasty attack on Michael Jackson's relationship with children by showing the truth that he was truly a world's champion of children and a sensitive, kind person. And I felt mothers would relate to that. So I went against what I was advised by the consultant. I followed my instincts and fortunately it worked out. And, and you know, you talk a lot about criticism from, from the pundits and things like this. I always have to laugh. Those, those pundits have, have rarely tried a case. They're usually, you know, a former federal prosecutor that has never actually defended a person um, or listen to the proceedings. And I know you got a lot of flack 
uh, for leaving five peremptories on the board and accepting the jury, which may have been the most brilliant move of the trial. Can, can, can you tell us about that story about leaving the five peremptories on the board and, and accepting the panel with, with uh, I think, no African-American jurors, right? Yes. Um, and race does come into this fact, this, this description of what, what I did. Um, I decided early on, because there are so few African-Americans in Santa Barbara County, and because Michael was being prosecuted by three black, three, excuse me, three white males uh, who were so full of themselves and so convinced they couldn't lose this thing. I mean, you should have seen them strutting around. The first day I met them in the evidence locker, I just said to my co-counsel, I said, these people are so full of themselves, they're going to be world stars in their mind. They can't lose the case. They're just floating on air. Uh, always a mistake. So... We're picking a jury and I'm looking at them and their white male jury consult. So there are four white males in charge of this prosecution at that point. And I watch how they're conferring with one another and I look at the jury dynamics and we start jury selection with a panel obviously of 12 jurors and some alternates, potential alternates. Lo and behold, there's a black female on the jury they immediately remove her. I object, we go to sidebar, and I tell the judge she was removed because of her race. I raise a constitutional objection and it's denied. To my surprise, another black female appears on the jury shortly thereafter. They remove her. I object again, go to sidebar, raise the same objection, my objection is denied. At that point, if you look at the alternate ranks, you've got the jurors in the 12 jurors in the box, and you've got about six alternates, I think it was, or eight alternates. There's a young black man at the far end of the alternates who mathematically, if I were willing to exhaust all my challenges, we probably could end up with him. And I sense that these white males in the, on the prosecution team thought, Mesereau's desperate to get a black person on the jury. He's desperate to hang the jury. The chances are black people are going to go for Michael Jackson. And we'll just accept the panel as is, accept the panel as is, accept the panel as is, bank our challenges. He'll keep exercising his to keep it going because he wants this black man to be on the panel. And at the end, we'll just run a table on him and get rid of people we don't want, including the Afri African-American male. And I shocked them by leaving five peremptories on the table and accepting the panel without the black alternate being on the panel. And I hope I'm explaining myself clearly. I, I don't know if I am or not, but they, their, their jaws just dropped. I, I had, bet. Well, I have also had heard before trial that the prosecutors who win so often in Santa Barbara County were used to doing that accepting the panel and banking their challenges and then running tables on the defense when the defense was out of them. So I call their bluff. They seemed an utter shock. And that, that jury panel ended up there for the whole five month trial. There wasn't one of them that dropped off and they acquitted Michael Jackson of every single count, every single charge. He was indicted on 10 felony counts. As the case was going to the jury, the judge on his own motion, allowed the jurors, if they acquitted him on the last four felony counts, to consider four misdemeanor counts. They acquitted him, they acquitted him of all 10 felony counts and all four misdemeanor counts. 
14 not guilty. Turned out to be the right panel for us. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. And and so I just love the the brilliant strategy move. But I, when I'm doing voir dire, I like to include the client in in because it's it's his life, of course. And so I, I like to think who who does the client think he connects with and it, was there some of that going on? Were you was Michael interacting with you during that process and and telling you who he liked and didn't like, or or were you were were you in control of that? You no, know, Michael was interacting and he was talking to his family from time to time, um, but he was extremely deferential to me, extremely respectful of what I did. The nicest client in the world to work with. Uh, obviously, very scared. You know, he was looking at possibly spending the rest of his life in prison if convicted of, of any of these charges. Uh, he was, you know, if convicted, going to have to register as a sex offender the rest of his life. And his life was effectively going to be over if he were convicted of any of these felonies. Uh, and if he were convicted of a misdemeanor, that would haunt him, too, because the headline would have been Jackson convicted. You know, the press was so against Michael Jackson and so wanting this circus-like atmosphere to work to their advantage with ratings and revenue. They wanted to see him convicted. They wanted to see him hauled off to jail. They wanted there to be a tense buildup to sentencing, probably a couple of months buildup. They wanted to be in the courtroom when he came in, in jailhouse orange with chains, without makeup, without dressing the way he normally did, and was hauled off to prison. This was a big, big thing for them in terms of ratings and revenue. So they wanted what was good for business. I wanted what was good for Michael. Um, so they were doing anything they could to skew a conviction, including during the eight days of jury deliberation, they were showing a jail cell where they claimed Michael Jackson was going to end up and they were spending hours talking about when he would wake up, what he would be fed, uh, would he be on suicide watch, what books could he read, who could visit him, that kind of thing. Uh, it was really, really, when you look back on it, almost animalistic the way they, they treated him. In fact, one journalist who I have a lot of respect for told me it was almost like seeing an animal tortured the way they were trying to, to convert this big, high-profile case into a business advantage for themselves. So, so you make this, this move at jury selection. You leave the peremptories on the board. You accept the panel. The, the prosecutors are in shock, which I love. But but you end up with no African-American jurors. And, and I imagine that some of Michael Jackson's handlers, he must have had a lot of people around him or are whispering in his ear that this was a mistake. I imagine that happened quite a bit before, during and after trial. Well, not after, of course, but before and during. I mean, how do you deal with those people that are sort of around him and giving him advice like that? Well, I was second guessed by everybody from the moment I showed up in the case. Uh, I pursued a number of tactics which and strategies, which I think were somewhat unconventional, which I can talk about as well. But yes, there was concern that there were no African-Americans on the jury. When I first got in the case, uh, even before I was considered to be on the case, uh, I did not like what I was seeing on the news. Michael was showing up with his Nation of Islam security detail uh, for court. I thought that was not a good idea. Uh, Michael was showing up with black civil rights leaders. I thought that was a mistake but because Michael was going to be judged by the community he lived in, which was not likely to have any African-Americans on the jury. Um, and the more I got to know Michael and his music, the more I realized this man brings races together. He doesn't divide them. 
I mean, look at his song, doesn't matter if you're black or white. I mean, look at his children from all races. I mean, he did a public announcement one time that he'd love to adopt a child from every continent. I mean, this man, he, he, he caused bridges between ethnic and religious and national groups. He didn't divide them at all. So I felt the impression he was giving because he was scared and looking for support, looking for protection, uh, was being was being done in the wrong way. So when I got on the team, I asked that Nation of Islam not be prominent, that black civil rights leaders not appear and be prominent. Uh, I was met with objections by lots of people. I think they were well-intentioned, but I was trying to do it the best I could to steer him to victory. And I think a criminal offense lawyer, particularly with a celebrity client, uh, has to explain the dynamics of criminal defense and the dynamics of the courtroom, because what happens in a courtroom is very counterintuitive to most people. Um, for example, sometimes the witnesses that do the best outside the courtroom do the worst in the courtroom. I've noticed in my career that very often politicians, uh, very good salespeople, uh, who promote themselves beautifully outside the courtroom. Don't do that well on the witness stand. It's a very different process, uh, very different. And jurors, jurors are at their most intuitive, their most instinctive, their most intelligent, because they know what the stakes are, and they're looking for the truth. Uh, and you've got to steer your client appropriately. Now, Jermaine Jackson, Michael's brother, published a book after the trial, and in the early chapters of the book, he says, we were turning on the TV and it sounded like this trial was a disaster for the defense. Everybody was criticizing Mesereau. Everybody was saying these witnesses were devastating to the defense. And then we would talk to Mesereau and he'd say, we're doing just fine, okay, one day at a time. So he said, you know, we were really worried, but it turned out to be okay. Um, if you're going to undertake a case like this, you have to expect to be a target of everybody. You've got not, not just in the opposite camp, you've got to be, you're going to be a target of the prosecution, you're going to be a target of the media, and you're going to be a target of many people on your own side. They're going to be jealous colleagues. They're going to be people trying to make a name for themselves off your demise, they hope. They're going to be people who legitimately disagree with you in what you're doing. You're going to be attacked from all sides. I mean, I would, uh, I would come home to my condo in Santa Maria and take a rest and turn on the TV and I look for 20 minutes and I stopped doing it. I mean, there'd be a prosecutor in New York City who hadn't set foot in the courtroom talking about everything I did wrong. Or, as happened on court TV a lot, there'd be some very troubling direct examination where the prosecution would call a witness, bring out some very, very disturbing information, and the media representative would run out of the courtroom as soon as the direct examination was over and not even watch the cross and repeat these disturbing details. And some of these witnesses got destroyed on cross. Their credibility was ruined, but that wouldn't be reported. So you can't take this stuff personally. You have to focus on 13 people, the judge and 12 jurors. They're the ones who count, nobody else. That doesn't mean you don't want some good press if you can get it. I mean, if, if, but I, I also discovered early that nobody wanted to hear positive things about Michael Jackson. I had one representative of a major network one time call me and say, you know, we know Michael Jackson has done these charitable works all over the world. He's visited children's hospitals to help kids. He's made Neverland a, a place where inner city kids can go and have fun. 
He's donated enormous amounts of money to children's charities. We'd like to do a show about it. And I said, well, that's very nice. We'd love you to do that. Why don't you just do it? She said, well, I think we need to talk to Michael Jackson first. And I said, no, let me see what you're really doing. And then we'll consider it. And of course, I never heard from this person again. It was a ruse, basically. They didn't want to focus on what was good about him. They wanted to demonize him and get some good entertainment value out of the case. So you got to have a thick skin. You got to stay focused as best you can. You're being attacked from all sides. That's part of the game. Tom Mesero stunned the prosecutors and the pundits with his jury selection. What happens in opening statement? Next. In law school trial advocacy classes, law students are taught to be conservative. They're taught to rely on the burden of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They're taught to, in opening statements, just lay out a roadmap. Don't get too aggressive. They're taught on cross-examination, never ask a why question, only ask leading questions. They're taught to object to prosecutors, witnesses who are just rambling on the stand. Those are the conventional wisdom teachings of lawyers in law school. And the classic example in law school is where a defendant is being charged with biting a person's ear off, the defense lawyer's cross-examining the eyewitness, questions go something like, and it was dark out, yes, you couldn't see anything, could you? No, you couldn't even see the person bite the ear off, could you? Answer, no. And the conventional wisdom is you should sit down there. Um, The example goes on to say, well, if you couldn't see him bite the ear off, how do you know he did so? And the witness answers, because I saw him spit it out. That's the example that law professors give for not asking open-ended why or how questions went on cross-examination. Of course, that doesn't happen in real life. In real life, there are risks that you have to take in trial when you don't know the answer and you have to ask an open-ended question. And you're gonna hear Tom Mesro explain how he decided to take risks in opening statement, in cross-examining prosecutors' witnesses, in objecting to prosecutors' witnesses, um, and throughout the trial and how that led to huge success. Next. And one of the things that you know, I remember you being attacked a lot about was your opening statement. And and people said, you know, defense lawyers in their opening should never assume the burden of proof, um, should be very cautious and do this, you know, what you learn in law school, the roadmap and be very cautious and, and really try to be powerful in closing, but an opening sort of sidestep. You took the opposite approach in, in, in your uh, opening, you assume the burden. Um, and for, for those people listening, um, you know, that's a very rare thing. Herbert Stern talks about it in his, in some of his trial books about how important it is to assume the burden. But most trial books say, you know, you got to rely on reasonable doubt, be cautious, be nervous in opening. You did the opposite and, and were sort of attacked for it. But it turned out to be, I think, one of the most important parts of the trial where you really uh, are, give that powerful opening and say, you're going to prove Michael Jackson to be innocent. Well, I was Herb Stern on steroids. <laughs> Uh, he's a great teacher, by the way, and you're, you're, you're absolutely right. He's always said you can't just hide behind reasonable doubt if you're a defense attorney. Um, but what I did in my opening statement was I not only assumed the burden of proof and told them I would prove he's innocent, 
I also made a contract with them and asked them to hold me to my contract at the end of this trial. I'm going to prove this man is innocent. Watch me. And yes, I was criticized very heavily. I mean, look, let me start from basics. Assume everyone who comes out of law school took a trial practice class. Assume they're bright. Assume they're extremely articulate because they've gone through three years of law school, they passed a bar examination. At some point, something must make a difference between the really good trial lawyers and the trial lawyers who do a competent job or, or worse. And I said to myself at one point, what is it? And I've been a very prolific reader of trial books. I still read them constantly and reread them. I love studying what great trial lawyers have done and not done in the past. Love to read about trials, not just from the point of view of lawyers, but from the point of view of journalists. Some of the best books about trial practice were written by journalists and Roy Black, who you had on last time. He and I have talked about this. What uh, Some of these great books have been written by non-lawyers about what goes on in a courtroom. So at any rate, I said to myself, look, walking into that trial, you know, the emotional environment, you know, people are not just intellectual, they're emotional. Uh, the emotional environment is so against us. The worldwide media has attacked us so completely, so relentlessly. Walking into this courtroom, I have to assume these jurors have heard the worst. And I've got to knock them around emotionally. I've got to let them know that we have nothing to hide. We, we stand for the truth. We're going to embrace the truth. And to do that, I'm going to tell them that I'm going to prove he's innocent. And I'm going to make a contract with them that by the end of this trial, I will have proven to them that this man is innocent. I love and I, I didn't mention reasonable doubt. I didn't mention presumption of innocence. And I didn't mention burden of proof because I had a feeling that if I start doing that, they would say his client's guilty. He's trying to hide behind technicalities. Because I think to ordinary people, the presumption of innocence is a technicality. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a technicality. Um, you know, I didn't want to look that way. I wanted to talk to them as a human being, look them in the eye and say, we're here to find the truth. I'm going to prove to you what it is. Now, what I did in my closing argument, when I had to talk about reasonable doubt was I let them know that they hadn't heard about it from me before. But since the judge had instructed them, they must follow the law of reasonable doubt and the jury instructions, I now was required to talk about. So that's how I approached discussing reasonable doubt in my closing argument, but not in my opening. I said, basically, we're here to prove to you this man is not a molester. This man is not a criminal. This is a very, very good human being who would never hurt a child. And I went from there. And Tom, one, one thing that jumped out at me from your opening was you said a number of times, Michael Jackson will tell you. And that sort yes. of jumped off the page at me when I, when I read that, because yes. to me, that's telling the jury, you're going to hear from Jackson. Now, you didn't come out and say he was going to testify, but that, that sort of indicates that, he's gonna, that he is going to testify. I mean, can you tell us about using that phrase in your opening a number of times? Sure. The prosecution wanted to play what was called the Martin Bashir documentary about Michael Jackson. Martin Bashir was a well-known journalist in England. He had written a, a respected book on Princess Diana. Michael Jackson revered Princess Diana. And he ingratiated himself with Michael Jackson and got Michael Jackson to agree to let him do a documentary on Michael Jackson. And 
Michael Jackson did something very, very smart when this was going on. Doing the interview was not smart, but he had his own videographer with him at all times. So he had all the footage of his interviews with Martin Bashir and they took place in different cities. And Martin Bashir said a lot of things that were complimentary about Michael Jackson and asked Michael Jackson about the case in the early 90s that he had settled, asked him about attacks on his character and things of that sort. And Michael Jackson responded. What eventually happened was Martin Bashir cut out the parts, in my opinion, that helped Michael Jackson and put together a scandalous, shocking documentary that he thought would promote his own interests. And that's kind of what happened. The prosecution wanted to play that documentary and they came up with a convoluted theory of motive. They had charged Michael Jackson, not just with molestation, but with conspiracy to falsely imprison a family, to abduct children and to commit criminal extortion. And they said that because that documentary was so bad that Michael Jackson and his handlers got this family together, extorted them, falsely imprisoned them and got them to say, make statements that were favorable to Michael Jackson in what was called the rebuttal documentary. So the judge let them play that documentary. So I knew they were gonna hear from Michael Jackson. And I also knew that this documentary, if the judge was fair, was gonna open up my ability to show the outtakes that were not included. What happens in those outtakes? Michael Jackson is asked about would he ever abuse a child? He says he would slit his wrists before he would abuse a child that he's never done anything like that, never done anything sexual with a child. He talks about wanting an international ch children's day around the world to focus on children's needs. He, he, he talks about the settlement in the early 90s, 1994. He says, I didn't want to put my family through an OJ type situation, so I was advised to just settle it, so I did. They heard from Michael Jackson. So when I said to them in my opening statement, you're gonna hear from Michael Jackson, I knew they were whether I put them on or not. And as things turned out, I didn't need to put him on because everything he needed to say had been said thanks to the prosecution. But I assume that at some point you had worked with him to prepare him to testify in the, in the event that you needed to call him. Yes. How was that preparation process? Did you have uh, lawyers uh, take the role of Snedden and cross him? Did, how did you prepare him to testify? I just did it myself ah. privately and basically conversed with him at length about these allegations, about his relationships with this family of accusers, about various witnesses, and got a good feeling for who he was, got a good feeling for how he would come across. And I basically wanted him to just be himself, no more and no less. I didn't want him to get angry during cross if he were attacked, which he would have been. I said, just be kind, be decent, be who you are, and the truth will come out. I had prepared him. He was willing to testify, but I made a decision we didn't have to. Right. And, and I saw that throughout the trial, his family uh, was there and supported him and was sitting uh, right behind him. It reminded me of that uh, Edward Bennett Williams trial where he represented Jimmy Hoffa and had Joe Lewis come and, and hug Hoffa during the break. I mean, were, was, was, were there other celebrities around and supportive in the audience during the trial? You know, uh, I called Jay Leno as a witness. I called Chris Tucker as a witness, and the prosecution called George Lopez as a witness. But I didn't want this to just be a celebrity, and I also called Macaulay Culkin as a witness. Right. Um, I didn't want it to look like we were loading up on celebrities in the audience just to impress the jury. I wanted to be very careful about that. Um, 
And obviously, if you're calling a celebrity as a witness, you can't have them sitting in, you know, with the, with the spectators because there's what is called a witness exclusion order where witnesses are not allowed to sit in the courtroom and watch what other witnesses are saying or not saying. So I did not make this a celebrity extravaganza. Uh, I could have. There were a lot of requests of people who wanted to come up and just be seen. Uh, we had a few celebrities come up who were close to Michael Jackson. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of celebrities shunned Michael Jackson during that period. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, there were a number of people he thought and hoped would be in his camp, and they sort of ran away, in my opinion, when, they need, when he needed them the most. Now, that's not true of Macaulay Culkin. That's not true of Chris Tucker. That's not true of Stevie Wonder, who we didn't, we didn't call as a witness. We didn't need to. Uh, we didn't put on a character defense, and he would have been a character witness, but there were so many people he thought would stand up for him in his darkest hour, and they did not. But I remember at his burial, Chris Tucker and Macaulay Culkin showed up, and I looked at both of them, and I said, you, you are heroes to me, and you'll always be heroes in my mind. I said, you were young, you were successful, you were financially strong. Every agent, producer, director, manager, lawyer was telling you, don't go near that trial, you're going to hurt your career. And you stood up for your friend and told the truth, and I'll never forget it. I can't believe you men had the character you did. And I hugged both of them, and I remember just, uh, and I meant what I said. Macaulay Culkin was going to tell the truth. He said, nobody's going to deter me away from it. And everybody was saying, don't go near it. Chris Tucker from day one said, Michael's my friend. This is all nonsense. I'm going to tell the truth. Macaulay Culkin was my second witness in the defense case, and Chris Tucker was my last witness in the defense case. And they did a wonderful job. And they were attacked pretty brutally by prosecutors. So before we get to them in the defense case, let me let me just talk about the state's case for a second. Um, because to cross-examine and go after a child accuser and his mother is, is tricky and really hard. And again, I, I love hearing the criticisms um, that, that you went after them too hard and that you asked too many of those open-ended why questions, which end up winning the case for you in a lot of ways. Um, so, so this is a 13-year-old uh, who, who I think you said was going on 30, um, had taken acting classes, was really a devious, uh, had some devious things in his past, and, and you went after him. Um, there was a great part of the cross. I, I printed it out. You, you, you uh, asked him questions like, you and your family wanted to stay at Neverland, correct? You wanted to take trips with Michael Jackson and did so, right? You went on amusement rides with Michael Jackson, didn't you? Michael Jackson introduced you to people you could only dream about actually meeting, right? And again, we have the yes, 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 uh, classic cross-examination questions here that you read about. And at some point, you became very angry at Michael Jackson, didn't you? And then we have the payoff question, and you ask why. And, and can, can you tell us a little about the strategy there and what the answer was and what happened? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's a law professor who's highly respected in Los Angeles named Lori Levinson. She teaches at Loyola Law School. She's a friend of mine. She covered that cross-examination. And she's always told her classes that that why question was the biggest no-no for anybody doing cross and yet it won the case. Because, look, look, I, I took an approach to the family which was a little bit harsher than many criminal defense lawyers take. Um, I did it because instinctively and intuitively, I just felt the situation was right for it. I did feel that this accuser was a lot more mature 
than his age indicated. Uh, I felt that a lot of the answers he was giving, you know, were certainly, you know, I wouldn't say rehearsed, I wasn't there, but certainly gone over in advance by the prosecution and the police. Um, and at that point, uh, first of all, let me, let me go back again. I've always felt that the best cross-examiners at some point will take risks and ask, ask why questions. In law school, we're taught, and even after law school, don't ask a how or a why question because you allow the witness to almost say anything they feel like saying. Uh, keep them under a tight leash. Uh, if you can, ask questions that require a yes or a no answer. And I understand the philosophy behind that. It makes perfect sense. But I've always felt that if you're going to be a great cross-examiner, you've got to take a risk. And that means you can get burned, too, because what you're taught might happen can happen. But if it doesn't happen, you can win a case on a why question. The question is, when do you want to ask it? Why do you want to ask it? And what risks are you willing to take? Um, as you just read, uh, I was getting yes answers to my questions. And I felt that this accuser and his family had been very angry at Michael Jackson because Michael Jackson was beginning to distance himself from them. He had done a lot of nice things for them. He invited them to stay at Neverland, which they'd done on a number of occasions. He had a blood drive for the child accuser who had cancer. He gave them some gifts, computer and things like that. And I felt that they realized they were on the outs, that this relationship was ending and they were angry. And I certainly never thought this young man had been molested, not for one second. So I kind of prepared him for the why question by asking him questions that I knew he would answer yes to, that I knew would resurrect and recreate and remind him of his anger towards Michael at that particular period of time. And I didn't think Michael had been molested. I'm not Michael, excuse me. I didn't think he had been molested by Michael. Um, so I asked him this series of questions. I felt he was reminded how upset with Michael he and his family were, reminded him of what had upset him, and then asked him the why question, thinking he would not say anything about being molested. And guess what happened? He said he was angry. He gave a lot of reasons why he was angry and never mentioned I was molested. And to me, that was one of the crowning jewels of my performance in the trial. And Professor Levinson thinks that won the case. She said, you could hear a pin drop when I said why, and there it came. I, listen, I could have been ruined. You know, the case could have been ruined. I could have been reminded the rest of my days about what a fool I was by breaking the rules and asking that question, but I took a chance. What a moment, what a moment, awesome. And, and then the mom testifies and the mom is giving all of these rambling, long-winded answers. And I've been in trial, I, I don't love to object in trial either. And, and, and my, my partner uh, in lots of trials is nudging me, object, object, object. And I like to let these witnesses a lot of times just talk. And the conventional wisdom is when you can't object, you should object, it throws the prosecutor off, it throws the witness off. But in this case, you let the mom just ramble on and, and eventually the prosecutor starts objecting to his own witness. What happened? Well, I had examined the mother briefly in a pretrial hearing. I had filed a motion, which I didn't expect to win, 
although we had a good faith basis for it, but I really wanted to call witnesses and see what they were like. And I got the impression in that hearing that she's going to bury the prosecution. She's not going to be a good witness for a lot of reasons. So the prosecutor called her as a witness. She started rambling, you know, and just, just talking and talking and talking. And I refused to object like most of my colleagues probably would have because they'd be afraid of what would come out. I wasn't afraid of what would come out, nor was I afraid of how it was coming out. I thought she was just coming across as someone that the jury would not relate to in the least or, or particularly like or trust. That was just my instinct. I didn't know if it was gonna be true or not, but she just began just making a speech every time he asked her a question. I concluded she was hurting the prosecution, not me, so I refused to object. My co-counsel would say to me, object, object, and I would say, no, I like it, you know. Uh, and eventually the prosecutor who kept looking at me waiting for the inevitable objection, he started objecting to his own witness. Objection, your honor, you know, move to strike and, and, and her testimony would be stricken. And it was his witness. It was really funny. Um, but that's another example where I think I broke the rules. Uh, I seemed to break them throughout that trial. And fortunately, it, uh, it worked. So I, the, I love the breaking the rules because there really shouldn't be trial rules uh, but there are, and and the great trial lawyers know when to follow them and when not to. What, one of the rules that I read about out in California, it just blew me away, is that prior bad acts in sex offense cases are allowed to come in. I mean, generally, so that people know, when you're charged with an offense, you're supposed to be tried for that offense. Prior bad acts are typically not allowed to come in, absent some specific exceptions. In 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 California... Um, there's one of the big exceptions is in sex abuse cases, in sexual crime cases, um, prior bad acts are permitted to come in. I, I was very surprised to see that. And then I saw um, all these prior allegations coming in against Michael Jackson. Well, uh, you're absolutely correct. In California, this kind of prejudicial material, and we're talking about, you know, allegations of, of criminal acts for which you were not charged. We're talking about uncharged acts, which the prosecution claims show a particular modus operandi, a, a particular way of behaving that they do to bolster their case. So what happens in a case like that, you're not only defending the actual charges, you're defending other allegations that uh, might, you know, according to the prosecutors, look similar um, as if you're on trial for them. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't give you a fair trial. And then... The judges in states which allow this kind of testimony to come in will give this very convoluted, confusing instruction to the jury that you're not to use this evidence as evidence of bad character. You're only to use it to see if there is a particular way of behaving. And it makes no sense. And I think it's for the most part disregarded. But in the Jackson case, I very aggressively attacked the, the allegations that he had molested other children in uncharged cases. Um, and I think we effectively neutralized that evidence. And indeed, in my closing argument, I looked at the jury and said, why do you think they brought this other behavior in for which he was never charged? Because their case is so weak. Right. This is evidence that their case is weak. They're, under, they're not confident in their case. So they're trying to prejudice you with this other nonsense, which turned out to be not truthful either. Um, so it worked out, but it creates for a very, very tense problem 
for the defense when you're defending the underlying charges as well as uncharged alleged offenses. It's, a, it's, it's not a fair proceeding, in my opinion. And it will, it will induce prosecutors to bring weak cases because they think they can make the difference with the uncharged conduct, which they hope will shock and prejudice the jury. It's been months and months of the state's case just pounding away at Michael Jackson. Now it's time for Tom Mesro to present the defense case. Which of Michael Jackson's friends are still willing to stand up for him? Next. If you remember back to the Harvey Weinstein trial and the interview of Donna Rotuno, all of the witnesses that the defense had lined up really tried to stay away from Harvey in that case. They, they ran away from him. The same happened in the very famous Michael Vick case when he was charged with animal abuse. Many people uh, just got away from Michael Vick during that time because the charges were so uh, serious. Other than child abuse, animal abuse is, is the most hated type of crime. So what happened here? You, you'll see that Jay Leno tried to run from Michael Jackson, but Tom Mesro wouldn't let him. And But there were people who stood by him, like Macaulay Culkin, who gave riveting and important testimony for Jackson. How did Tom Mesro keep all of the defense witnesses together? And how did he get people like Jay Leno to testify? We'll talk to Tom about that in the next segment of For the Defense. So, you know, you move on to the defense case. I mean, the prosecution case lasted months. It's now time to put on a defense case. You have, as you said before, Macaulay Culkin, Jay Leno, some other folks lined up. I don't think Jay Leno wanted to testify, right? You had to sort of nudge him into it. You, you, to put it mildly, he didn't want to testify. What happened was Jay Leno did not know that his interview with the police by phone, Santa Barbara, I think it was Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department, had been secretly recorded by the police. So it was a long interview and he didn't know what they had secretly recorded. I, of course, knew and had to tape. So we subpoenaed Jay Leno, had a process server appear and hand him a subpoena. His lawyer called me up and was quite upset and said to me, you know, you don't want to call Jay Leno because first of all, he doesn't remember very much of the conversation he had with the police. And uh, you don't want him as a witness. You know, I won't say any more. You don't want him. I said, well, we do want him. And I said, uh, if you want to watch me embarrass him before the world, just let him behave the way you just described, because he was recorded by the Santa Barbara Police Department. I have the recording. And if I need to refresh his recollection, I'd be happy to do it. It'll be an embarrassment. If he wants to play that game, let him do it. I'm calling him as a witness. So the surprised lawyer said to me, will you send me a copy of it? And I said, sure. So I sent him a copy. And Leno had said words to the effect that he supported the police department. He was on their side. Uh, From what he'd read, there was a strong case against Michael Jackson. Uh, But he had some concerns about this young man who had called him, who turned out to be the accuser in our case. He said he seemed, you know, I talked to a lot of 13-year-olds, a lot of young kids, he seemed more sophisticated, or words to that effect came out of Jay Leno, than someone his age. There was a woman in the background that seemed to be influencing him or encouraging him in what to say. Uh, they didn't ask for money, but I thought they wanted some. 
Didn't Leno say he was looking for a mark or something like this? Yeah, he said, where I thought they were looking for a mark is what he said, although they didn't actually ask for money in that conversation. And he said, after it was over, I told my staff, don't put that person through again. Now, what's interesting about the, the prejudice media is I called him as my witness. These things came out. He fit beautifully into the defense we were presenting, which is that we were arguing that this family were after celebrities, including Leno, including... Chris Tucker, including George Lopez, including Michael Jackson. And the, he fit beautifully into our narrative. Well, I, I turned on the TV the next day after court was over, and I looked at what their press were reporting, and they were saying basically Leno blows up on the defense, testifies <laughs> they didn't ask for money. <laughs> yeah. Must have made you crazy. Well, I mean, it didn't make me crazy because I, I had a thick skin at that point. I was used to it, you know. But can you imagine that? He said didn't ask for money, that with this witness helped the prosecution. It was just the opposite. He helped us immeasurably. But that's the kind of media machine we were, we were dealing with. Tom, was the jury sequestered? Did they get to see that media coverage or no? They were not sequestered. I didn't want them sequestered. We thought this was going to be an eight to nine month trial. And I know that a sequestered jury is going to be an angry, an unpleasant jury if you have them locked up for months on end. I decided I didn't want to sequester jury. I felt they would be miserable and angry by the end of it. Um, I took my chances that they would follow the court's orders. And uh, apparently they did because they did deliberated for approximately eight days um, and they acquitted them of every charge. So they did their job and I respect what they did. And, and with people like Leno and Macaulay Culkin, I mean, it sounds like Leno didn't want to be a witness, so there probably wasn't much prep for him before he got on. But with someone like Macaulay Culkin, were you able to sit down with him before and, and prepare him like you would any other witness? I sat down the night before with he and his lawyer. His lawyer was from New York. He was a nervous wreck. He wanted to know what Macaulay was going to be asked. I could tell he was very, very concerned about Macaulay you know, testifying in that trial that it might hurt his reputation or hurt his ability to get work. And I understand that. Of course. Um, you know, the lawyer was just doing his job and he was a very bright professional guy. Um, I sat down the night before and I basically said what I said to all witnesses. I asked questions to try and find out what they're thinking, what they're saying. And I tell them, just be yourself. No more and no less. Be yourself at all times. Be respectful of the court. Listen to questions you're asked. Uh, answer them honestly and to the best of your ability and be who you are. Don't be who you think Tom Mesereau wants you to be. Be exactly who you are. And that's what he did. And he was savagely cross-examined by a very skilled prosecutor. And he just wouldn't give an inch. He said, he's my friend. I've been in his bed many times. My sister has, my mother have. The, the bedroom's as big as this building, you know, um, and I've traveled with him and he's never done anything improper to me or anybody else. Why would the prosecutor go after him so hard on cross. What was the theme of the cross? I think they wanted to show he was just trying to stick up for his friend, that maybe he'd been influenced by someone. Um, it was a nasty, aggressive cross. It really was. So, so let's turn to closing real quick. You know, I saw that there was like a hundred pages of jury instructions, which always really uh, annoys me that, that judges think that jurors can understand a hundred page legal document when even the lawyers can. I mean, how do you, how do you synthesize a hundred pages of jury instructions for a jury? Well, in, in California and in most states, I think, not Alabama, however, 
the jury instructions don't go into the jury room so they can look them up and go through them. Um, and I know judges in other states, not just Alabama, don't allow that, but in California, they do. What I typically do in my closing argument is I take five jury instructions that I think are critical to my defense, and I blow them up, and I walk the jury through them. And I tell them, sometimes I may go through it a second time, and I tell them, this is why this, what I just read to you is significant. This is why this line is significant. This is why this line is significant. Remember, you know, this document or remember this testimony or remember that testimony and that document. And I sort of walk them through no more than five instructions. So they will know what those instructions are. And I tell them to look it up in the jury room if you, if you still feel confused by it. And I say, these things will confuse anybody. Um, that's how I approach it. And, and one of the um, tricks to closing, I think, is developing an important theme uh, trying to give that theme and, you know, what they now they teach in trial school and trilogies. I saw that you used lies, innuendo and exaggeration throughout your closing. Um, was that something that you had developed early on in the case or when you were preparing for closing? How did that work? Well, it kind of evolved, just kind of what I would say to try and jog their memory about what happened in the trial, put things into the right perspective. Um, you come up with phrases that, you know, are clear and you hope not offensive or not condescending in any way. You don't ever want to be arrogant. Uh, you know, you may be highly critical. You may get aggressive about certain witnesses or certain things the prosecution did uh, that you think you submit they shouldn't have done. But one thing I want to mention is that you have to use transcript. If you're a criminal defense lawyer, I'm shocked how many criminal lawyers don't use transcript in their closing. And I always have transcript, key pages that I show the jury. I always tell them that prosecutors and defense lawyers can argue over what a witness said, but transcripts don't lie. Let's look at this witness. And I'll have transcript, and then I'll zoom in on certain portions of the transcript. Let it just come alive right in front of them. And you can, otherwise, they go into the jury room saying, well, the prosecutor said this witness said this. And the defense lawyer said this witness said this. I wonder what they really said. What do you remember? I want to nail down what's going to help me in transcript. It's no better way to diffuse those types of disagreements than to just show it right at them. Zoom right in, make these words big as can be in transcript that you've blown up. It's not fancy, but it's very effective. There's some judges in Miami who don't like when lawyers do that because then the jury always asks, can we get the transcripts for the whole trial uh, sent back to us? And they don't like that. Mm -hmm. Sure, I've heard that too, but nevertheless, I think if you've got transcript that nails down key points, that makes them not subject to disagreement or, or dis disagreement on interpretation, you know, I always tell them transcripts don't lie. Right. Lawyers can exaggerate, people can have different recollections, but transcripts don't lie. Let's look at what these witnesses said. Boom, boom, boom. After all these years of Sned and pursuing Michael Jackson, were you surprised he didn't give the closing argument? His, his second chair gave the closing. I wasn't because I thought the better trial lawyer was Ron Zonin. Ron Zonin hmm. is an exceptional prosecutor and an exceptional trial lawyer. I think in every way he was more effective than Sneddon was. Sneddon was effective, don't get me wrong. He is a down-home way of just being himself, you know, being sort of salt of the earth, uh, not embellishing or putting on any airs. He's a very effective, was a very effective prosecutor. He's since passed away. 
But Ron Zonin, in terms of passion, in terms of charisma, in terms of preparation, in terms of experience, I thought was the better prosecutor. And I think it was actually a smart move on their part. I had a prosecutor once in his closing go after me. I had blown up uh, some reasonable doubt questions and he was going through the questions in his rebuttal and took the board after and threw it at our at our desk. Um, I, I saw that Zonin went after you personally and, and I liked your response to it, which was, you know that he's in trouble if he has to go after me. I mean, was the jury <laughs> reacting to all that stuff during closing? Well, what happened was this. Um, I had a powerful opening statement. I promised to do a lot of things. Some of them I didn't end up doing for a lot of different reasons. Um, so what, what Zonin did was begin his closing argument with a list of things that Mesereau said he would prove and didn't prove in Mesereau's opening statement. Uh, he went through it all. I sat there silent. I don't think I objected very much. Um, and then when it came time for my closing, I began by saying words to the effect, members of the jury, I've learned in this profession that when a prosecutor begins by attacking the defense lawyer personally, they're in big trouble. <laughs> and let me, let me tell you something that you won't see in the transcripts of that. I kind of rattled their cage a bit when I did this because the, ju the jury was very attentive and I don't think they were expecting it. When Zonin got up for rebuttal, he had some visuals. Uh, he had a screen where things they had prepared in advance and he began with Mesereau's, you know, lies. It, it, it said Mesereau's lies. It flashed to the jury and suddenly pulled it down. I think he was supposed to have pulled it down before. <laughs> I think I rattled them with <laughs> my reaction to this. They didn't want to go into it anymore. They mistakenly flashed the first slide they were going to use on rebuttal to go after me again and then took it right down. It was very amusing. That's great. <laughs> That's great. And so there's there's 10 counts, I think you said, and t four of them could be misdemeanors. There's always the concern when there's so many counts, at least I have it, that the jury might compromise. Give the pro after especially a long trial, give the prosecutor some, give the defense some, uh, especially when there's a lesser like a misdemeanor. Were you concerned about compromise and how did you deal with that? Well, I was uh, I, w I really thought we had done a good job. I had a decent feeling from the jury, although you never know. Um, and I felt there was a good chance that they would, if they acquitted, excuse me, pardon me, if they reached a verdict on anything, I thought it was going to be not guilty. I didn't see them convicting him. I thought we had done such a good job. And I thought a lot of the prosecution's efforts to tarnish Michael Jackson fell apart. Um, but you never know. When the judge, in my opinion, threw them a little gift at the end by allowing them to consider four misdemeanors, if they acquitted on the last four felony counts, those were ugly felony counts. Those counts were giving alcohol to a minor for purposes of preparing them to be molested. And what the judge said was, if you acquit him of any of those last four counts, you may consider a misdemeanor, which was giving alcohol to an under, underage person. Um, I thought it was designed to throw a life raft to the prosecution because I think the judge knew we had done a very, very good job. Um, when I heard there were verdicts, I honestly thought they were all gonna be not guilty. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised if there were a few hung counts, because you never know if there's somebody in the jury that you misinterpret or doesn't really like your presentation or it was affected by all sorts of things you don't know about. But when I heard they reached a verdict on every count, my gut feeling, I said this, my gut feeling was he's going home. And so you get the not guilty verdicts. I mean, moment of a lifetime, biggest trial of your career, you get the not guilties. 
how big is the party after? Well, you'll be surprised at my response. We, the, the last not guilty came down. I looked at Michael and said, you're going home. We hugged. The defense team all hugged. When I hugged Michael, I noticed some members of the press, who I won't name, who were looked very, very disappointed. Who <laughs> came into that courtroom with their eyes just glowing with excitement, big smiles on their face. They left very disappointed. The story was over for them. Um, hugged every member of our team. And then Joe Jackson, Michael's father, who's known to have a big ego, um, came walking up to me with a big smile on his face. He put out his hand to shake my hand. He said, you're almost as good as me. <laughs> I'll never forget. Um, I avoided a press conference that a lot of people were hoping I would uh, participate in. I felt I needed to be at Neverland with Michael and his kids and his family. Uh, went to Neverland. Uh, everybody was happy, but it wasn't like a rip-roaring type party. It was more like everyone was exhausted, uh, very grateful. There was a spiritual feeling. God protected us, that kind of thing. His mother is very religious. Um, and everybody hugged, and I, you know, he told his kids to give me a hug, which was so nice. And then I brought in a lot of our staffers who had met Michael Jackson, who were working you know, back at what we call the war room. We had a duplex. Uh, with about, oh my God, 35, 40 computers. We had thousands of bind, bind, you know, binders with witness statements and things like that. Um, I brought them in upstairs to meet Michael Jackson individually, which was nice. And to be honest with you, I went back to my condo and I went to bed at 7.30. I was exhausted. I had to get up at 2.30 to do some interviews with CNN, international CNN and the major networks, ABC. NBC, CBS. I think I did a couple of more interviews and I just went back and crashed again. I was really, really exhausted. This thing took its toll on me in ways that I didn't realize at the time. And um, I didn't, uh, didn't party it up at all. I got into bed and was happy I was alive. I imagine. I imagine. And so, you know, you get to watch um, afterwards the jurors get interviewed, which of course doesn't happen uh, all the time. And a lot of the jurors pointed to specific moments in the trial as like defining moments. One of the jurors talked about the, the mom snapping her fingers uh, at the jury. Was, at the time, was that a particularly big moment for you or, or only, only afterwards? You know, I didn't, you don't know how things are affecting a jury unless they tell you. I felt that the mother's testimony was so damaging to the prosecution in so many different ways that the snapping her finger was just one of many things I thought were, were counterproductive. How influential it would be, I didn't know. Right. But I didn't think it was positive for the prosecution, for sure. But there's so many things she said and, and, and the way she said them that I thought were going to hurt the prosecution, that that was just one of many to me. And you said that, you know, it took its toll on you, the trial, in ways that, that you didn't understand at the time. What, what do you mean by that? How did, it, how did it take its toll on you? Well, as I said before... You're fighting the prosecution. You're fighting the media. You're dealing with your own camp, family members who are afraid, who are being influenced by the media, um, who think the trial is what they, they see and hear on television. Uh, you've got people in your own camp backstabbing you, trying to betray you, trying to do all sorts of things because they want to ingratiate themselves. There are a lot of people just with, with cameras, with, with celebrity, with high profile trials, they change. They don't behave the way they should. You've got jealous colleagues trying to get to the family. 
I've learned years later that lawyers were flying to Neverland in the middle of a trial trying to replace me, trying to say, tell Michael he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, you're, you're kind of a lone wolf. You're battling everybody. Fortunately, I had a couple of people that I trusted and worked well with who turned out to be very professional, very honest. And, um, but, you know, we're talking about a couple of people, really. I mean, you're always balancing, you know, who you can trust and when you can trust them and when you can't. And that includes, you know, investigators, it includes consultants, it includes all sorts of people. You see information getting to the press, you're wondering who's giving it to them, where's that coming from? You know, is there someone leaking meetings? Who should you have at careful strategy meetings? Who could you not totally trust? Maybe you trust a little bit. It's a battle from all angles. And this was the biggest case of my career. I was defending the best known person in the world. It was being followed in every world capital. Um, so the pressures were enormous and fortunately I came through them in one piece. And, and Tom, after the trial, obviously it's the biggest trial of your career, of anybody's career. I mean, how does it affect your career afterwards? I mean, you, the phone must've been ringing off the hook. Phone rings off the hook, but I mean, a lot of nuts too, calling up <laughs> yeah. a lot of crazy people. Um, you realize you've lost some privacy and I tend to be a very private person. I like to do a lot of things that are not particularly fancy or, or uh, of entertainment value. I like to just go to my own haunts. I'm a creature of habit. Uh, they're not necessarily the fanciest. And I realized that there could be a real intrusion into my family and kind of, I went into a little bit of seclusion after it, you know, I just wanted to live my simple life. And yes, the phone was ringing off the hook for sure. I was exhausted. It took me a long time to just get out of bed and want to face, you know, trials again. Because um, this thing just was six months of my life living in another place, uh, eating, drinking, and sleeping, this case, and all the pressures. And I'm very blessed to have had the chance to do it and very blessed to have come out of it okay. But it did take its toll for sure. And, and did you stay in touch with Michael after the trial? I immediately let Michael know that I thought he should leave Neverland and I thought he should leave Santa Barbara County. And there was resistance at first because I said, Michael, I've lived up there for six months. These prosecutors are embarrassed. These police officers are embarrassed. They feel they've been you know, humiliated before the whole world. They're not gonna take this lightly. They don't like you. And I'm afraid they're gonna try and lay some other case on you no matter how weak it may be. Uh, and I don't get a good feeling. I think Neverland has come and gone as far as you're concerned. And I think he should think of moving. And his handlers called me up and said, do you know something we don't know? I said, no, I'm just giving you my instinct. And then one day Michael called my law partner and he was in Bahrain in the Middle East. He had moved to the Middle East um, to get away from all that and was starting a, a new life in the Middle East. He was there about nine months. Then he moved to Ireland, he tried France and England. He eventually moved to Las Vegas, then came back to Los Angeles for the biggest comeback. And then as you know, he passed away unexpectedly. Um, so I didn't talk to Michael that much. You know, he called the office. I talked to him, I think once or twice after it. He talked more with my partner because she was helping him with some business related matters. And uh, that's what happened. What a story. What an unbelievable story. And, and are you still trying cases out in Alabama? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been doing it for over 20 years. I, I do a pro bono murder case every year with my dear friend, Charlie Salvaggio, the greatest criminal 
trial lawyer in, in the state of Alabama. He's got his practice in Birmingham. We're dear friends. And uh, I go there every year. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you, Tom. This has been truly great. I loved hearing about the trial and I'm sure everybody will. So I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk about this. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm honored and uh, you run a great show and best of luck. Thank you. What an unbelievable trial and victory for Tom Mesero and Michael Jackson. Unbelievable. Next week, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to speak to the lawyer's lawyer, Marty Weinberg from Boston. Marty represented Bill Moran, who was charged with being basically the in-house counsel for the Cali cartel. So we'll talk about the dangers for criminal defense lawyers in getting too close for your clients and the difficulties in representing a lawyer when you're a criminal defense lawyer. I look forward to speaking with Marty next week on For the Defense.